It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. This is a last chance saloon. Because if we don't really take the decisions that are vital now, it's going to be almost impossible to catch up. We will end the moratorium on extracting our huge reserves of shale, which could get glass flowing as soon as six months. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbon Easter Series 4 Fool's Gold. I'm Ian Collins and this is the UK's number one environment-based podcast. If it's green, it's in. And what a difference a change of government makes. The breaking news today is that Liz and Boris are now the new Greta Thunbergs of British politics and they're going to solve the nation's energy crisis. Let's speak to our man digesting this and firmly sporting the I'm with cynical t-shirt. He's the green entrepreneur and environmentalist Dale Vince. Dale, morning. Yeah, morning, Ian. Lovely story, this one. I mean, they both said they were going to solve the energy crisis when they were in power, uh, didn't they? But uh, what they've come together to do this morning is basically to f*** off Rishi Sunak, right? They're going to join forces to uh, to lobby to bring back onshore wind to overturn his ban, which was actually a ban that Johnson never bothered to overturn when he was prime minister for three years. Uh, and Liz Truss did say that she would when she was prime minister for 45 days. Yes. So, so Boris talked up his green credentials. It's great being green. Remember, he did all that stuff. But then he didn't do anything about onshore wind at all. So that kind of remained banned under his watch. Hmm. Liz Truss said in her half an hour as prime minister that she would overturn this and gave it the green light. Rishi Sunak comes in and says no or He's put it, kicked it into the long grass. And then Boris and Liz pitch up together to campaign against Rishi to say he's got to reintroduce this. Yeah, but it's politics, right? I mean, uh, Truss obviously believes in it. That was her policy uh, in her moment in the sun. But Johnson, with his three years, never bothered to touch it. That's not his policy or his belief. Uh, He's just uh, stirring trouble for Sunak. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've got the worst of all worlds right now because Sunak came in and overturned Truss's overturning of the ban on onshore wind, but he maintained her new ban on solar power onshore. So we're like, we've got the worst of all worlds between these three, three amigos, three fools that have, have been or are currently prime minister. I'm, I'm slightly speechless because it doesn't sort of make much sense. As you rightly say, uh, this is probably more about trying to give Rishi Sunak a kick in the kahunas, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, I'm certain of it. It's just politics. I mean, yeah. I'm so frustrated with the man. Three years as prime minister, he did diddly squat for the environment. He actually said it was easy being green, not great being green. And uh, But it was easy for him because he did do f- all about it. He just did nothing. Uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's, easy. it's easy doing nothing is what he should have said. That's what he should have said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so where does this go then? So the Tories are going to battle this out, and there'll be lots of Tory backbenchers who represent constituencies, one assumes, are in those kind of rural areas where they say, this is outrageous, a blight on the countryside, we don't need this. Mm. Um but because we've talked about this many times, it, it's somewhat of a no-brainer, really, isn't it? Because like, here's some energy that is, once the infrastructure is in place, is literally free because it comes from the weather. Or you can spend a trillion, billion, trillion, squillion quid over there doing something different. So is the prime objective from those, objection from those MPs merely aesthetic? 
It's a mistake. It's based on a Tory myth that people don't like wind energy. And it started under Cameron. He's the man that brought the ban in. A hundred of his MPs wrote to him and said their constituents didn't like them, so he banned it, which is a nonsense basis for policymaking, right? But uh, only last week, uh, an amazing opinion poll came out that showed that 80% of conservative voters actually support onshore wind. So it's a complete myth in that party and in that government, the onshore wind is unpopular. And somehow we have to get them to see that. It's interesting, isn't it? So other than this argument about some of our constituents, which doesn't hold up, bearing in mind the stat you just gave us, could there be any other, even if you don't agree with it, could there be any other argument they would have? No, there are no arguments against wind energy, except that you can see them. And for most people, that's not a downside, that's an upside, because people uh, appreciate them for the job that they're doing and find them, you know, kind of majestic addition to the countryside. And of course, right now, when energy bills are nearly £5,000 a year, then we appreciate them all the more. And as you said, once we build the infrastructure, the energy is free, but it's also forever, right? We don't have to spend money every year buying this this fuel like fossil fuels and, and see that all go up in smoke. I mean, fossil fuels are a single-use energy source. Renewable energy is forever. We build the infrastructure, we harness it forever. It's madness. And also, onshore wind and solar need no government money. So in the, the we need to sprint from 50% green electricity on the grid to 100%. And onshore wind and solar are our best weapons for doing that. No public money, the fastest, cleanest uh, energy sources that we can deploy. But they're both currently thwarted by a conservative government that's too busy infighting and fooling itself with its own myths about renewable energy to see the wood for the trees. Um, um, what's extraordinary about this is that this could rumble on for the remainder of their time in government. <laughs> it could be for the remainder of our time on this planet, right? Well, indeed. It's frustrating. It's frustrating because uh, the economic argument for onshore wind and solar is incredible. You know, we, we're used to hearing the other myth of the Tory party is that green energy is costing money and pushing up bills. We can build this stuff with no public money. There's virtually no other energy source you can say that about. Where in the world are doing this best, which is often the question that comes up? You know, people often say, well, if this worked brilliantly, why are more places not doing it? Who's excelling uh, in the windmill department? China are doing really rather well. Just about every other country in the world, I would say, uh, are doing really rather well. You know, like, like the fact that we languish uh, bottom of the OECD economic table 38 out of 38 nations you know we're, we're the same when it comes to renewable energy we just sit there at the bottom except for offshore wind which we've pumped a whole load of money into it's, it's frustrating we should move on to another story yeah energy cap <laughs> rises to 4,279 but don't panic <laughs> yes and don't build windmills right we yeah you get, i was <laughs> juxtaposing those two uh, stories is quite curious right <laughs> yeah oh it's so frustrating because the answer to one is is the other uh, and and it's a permanent solution to not just this energy crisis but all the future ones that are yet to come and to our energy insecurity which is baked into our utter dependence on fossil fuels from you know lunatic regimes like saudi arabia and russia and you know even to a degree uh, the us who, who are completely uh, self-focused in terms of what they produce and what they sell it for and and, and that kind of stuff Do you know what i mean the us are not necessarily our friends not when the chips are down in uh, in all kinds of commercial and economic ways well it's interesting isn't it because we we sort of had this sense that we might uh, when it comes to energy prices it might have all peaked, but I mean, this sort of suggests it clearly hasn't yet, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Ofgem's methodology for calculating this cap is to look into the forward energy markets. So um, 
Right now, energy prices have come off a little, but the forward prices haven't. The market is still worried about what happens in the future. And for me, this is another frustration. The market isn't setting the price according to the price of production. It's setting it according to the price of fear. And this is what we're seeing in our bills. 4,000, nearly 300 quid is about fear in the market, putting uh, you know extra cost into fossil fuels, which we utterly depend on. We let global markets set the price for that. Even though half of our gas comes from our North Sea, we're going to pay this new stupid price that we are paying it. We've been paying it now since the energy crisis began. And it's just one of the fundamental problems we have with the, the, the dogma of free markets that we've been wedded to since Thatcher. We let the markets decide all kinds of things, even what we pay ourselves for our own gas. That's madness. Uh, here's a question from Phil on LinkedIn. Keep seeing your amazing diamonds online. Are they strong enough for industrial usage? Good question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are diamonds uh, and diamonds and diamonds, whether they're industrial or, or you know, ripped out of the ground. Uh, same thing. So, yes, they are. Could hemp be a tool in climate change battle, screams a headline on The Guardian this week. Yeah, I mean, hemp has been um, been banging around for a while as, a, you know, the solution to so many different problems. You know, it's a building material. You can make clothes from it. Uh, and this story is about its incredible ability to absorb carbon, something like 20 tons per hectare, mm-hmm. uh, much more than trees can. It grows something like four meters in 100 days. It's incredible. Wow. Uh, it's like uh, it's like a weed, right? Uh, we, we might think of it as a weed. Sure. And um, currently, you can't grow it in this country without a license from the government. It's banned. Uh, even though it's not actually a narcotic, but it is related to the cannabis plant. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing answer for for rewilding and, and rapid carbon absorption. This one in from Amy on Twitter. Great to see you in The Observer. How do they think you had a fleet of racing cars, for goodness sake? Where did that come from? <laughs> Honestly, it's up there with the helicopter, isn't it? I guess it is. I have no idea. We we did a face-to-face interview some some months ago for that. And, um, you know, it's kind of, I'd forgotten it had happened and, and was surprised to see it in The Observer and The Guardian. It was it was otherwise a very accurate article, you know, one of the most accurate I've, I've seen yeah. and done. So what, yeah. so did the journalist just say, tell us about your racing cars? <laughs> no, we didn't talk about racing cars. Honestly, I don't know where he's coming from. It, it could have been a conversation about Forest Green and the electric cars that we have there for the uh, for the staff there. It could have been Got that. It. Yeah. And the helicopter, is that gone now? <laughs> Yeah, he didn't mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Flying around your neck of the woods, observing what's going on down there. Um, Here's an interesting headline. Seven in 10 young people are worried about climate crisis and want to do something. And this is a rather interesting position. I talked to friends who've got kids, you know, in their kind of early teens and the like. And this really is an important issue. But they're not really, not even in, I mean, there's a bit in schools. There's not a lot coming back to them compared to the interest they're putting into this. No, that's right. It's a it's a shame as well because this is causing um, stress, anxiety amongst young people, and I think it's it's always more uh, stressful when there's something that you want to do something about that you're unable to. Uh, that's how I find it in life, uh, anyway. If you're able to do something, that always is a, a release of that, of that kind of stress. We have created a um, primary school curriculum that's entirely themed around the environment. Every topic has sustainability woven into it. And we launched it last September and uh, road tested it with 20 schools nationally. And uh, we're now busy spreading it around the country, aiming for 10,000 primary schools in the next two years. So, you know, we're getting started on this whole education piece. And that came about because uh, Headmaster locally reached out to me and, and said, you know, 
we, we do a great job with our kids when they leave here, but we don't prepare them for the world that's coming. We, yeah. we aren't working with them on the climate crisis. So we got together with the, those teachers and built this curriculum. And for a laugh, we, we named ourselves, we name ourselves the Ministry of Eco-Education. Well, that's all right, though, isn't it? Yes. Well, that sounds, that sounds about right. <laughs> the government won't do it, right? The government said in two years' time, they're going to think about whether they need to do it or not. I'm like, come on. They <laughs> love a long decision, don't they? <laughs> don't Maybe it'll chime with the windmill decision, maybe at the same time. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sue says, uh, Dale, are you watching the World Cup? Uh, what about all this Qatar stuff? Yeah, I am watching the World Cup. I've seen a few games. I have to say I'm loving the football. Uh, the politics of it all, you know, I feel it's a little bit overdone. Um, and after all, Qatar was awarded the World Cup 12 years ago. It's not like any of us should be surprised. Like, like oh, Qatar, I've got the World Cup. When did that sure. happen? 12 years ago, right? But also at the same time, there's, I think, some hypocrisy in uh, in English football. Because a few weeks ago, Forest Green played um, South Shields in the FA Cup. And uh, it was on the BBC. We asked the FA... Um, for permission to wear warm-up T-shirts with the words Just Stop Oil on them. And they refused. They refused. They said, no, that's a political message and there'll be sanctions if you do it. Um, So we didn't do it rather than, uh, you know, cause problems. And and yet right now you've got the FA in Qatar lobbying to wear, for the players to wear armbands that FIFA have said you can't have, right? They're not allowed and and we'll sanction you. And the FA have been making quite a lot of this, you know, uh, using it as a kind of, um, you know, a platform for not virtue signaling, but, you know, to say, look, you know, we're on the side of the good guys here. We're, we're standing up against FIFA, except when the, when the threat of yellow cards came and then they caved in. And I'm, yeah. I'm about to write to the FA and say, look, how do you justify this, this difference in position? Correct. You, you know, you, you're willing to, to speak out against FIFA's rules and, and run the risk almost of sanctions. And, and at the same time, back here in England, you say, well, we can't wear a Just Stop Oil t-shirt. What's the difference between One Love and Just Stop Oil? Right? It's all in everybody's interest. You would think so. But you're, what you're trying to do, the fatal mistake you're making here, Dale, is trying to find logic from the FA. <laughs> that's and, that's and, my and mistake that's, in life. That's, right. that's, that's always a fool's errand. Uh, and you can extend that to FIFA as well. Where So so yeah, but between the two, these are impenetrable, confusing setups that I think are designed to do precisely that. And, and I think, you know, so many people and organizations like this don't see the uh, the double standards that they operate within, you know, refusing us the right to wear a T-shirt with an important message while, while lobbying to wear armbands with an important message on the biggest stage in, in, in world football. Absolutely right. Uh, melting glaciers could release a lot of forgotten bacteria. That's just another element, really, to this. That I've certainly never seen a headline like this before, but certainly there will be concern. We actually did touch upon this story a few episodes ago. There was a, another report that said that uh, underneath the melting ice, there there is bacteria and, and, and possibly viruses, all kinds of stuff that's been buried for tens of thousands of years, stuff that you know we won't have a resistance to and, and the animals that come into contact with it uh, first before us won't have a resistance to. And, and it could be a source of new global pandemics, which is quite a scary thought, really. And the idea of mankind un- being undone by bacteria from under the ice rather than ice melting and raising sea levels, that's, mm. a, that's a whole different kind of uh, ballgame, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Greg says, uh, he emailed, I heard you talking recently on the World Service about zero carbon air travel. Uh, is this really coming? It's always been the one, isn't it, in, in, the, in conversations about travel and changing energy sources and you know how you can make things move and get around and not completely reverse the human journey. Air travel has been that one with the massive question mark over it. 
Yeah, that's right. And to a lot of people, when you're in those conversations about the need to change how we live, it's seen as the Achilles heel of the green movement, the one thing that you can't solve. Um, and therefore, if you don't have that answer, then <laughs> nothing you're saying is, is worth pursuing, which is always a bit unfortunate. It's always been my position that, uh, you know, green flying is coming. It's in my books, uh, pr- predicting that within 10 years, we'll be flying across Europe. In conversations with sports journalists, it always comes up about football. How can football be green when, you know, clubs fly to international tournaments and stuff? And, you know, my answer there uh, is, is actually my answer everywhere. Let's not worry about what we can't deal with now, right? Because 80% of the problems uh, that we can deal with are, are in our control. And flying is something that's changing in the background, like fan travel in football. Another yeah. thing that comes up fans are adopting electric cars electric cars are taking over the roads and electric buses and in the same way electric planes are coming absolutely so i don't fret about that uh, at the moment that you know we don't have it it's definitely coming and i predict within 18 months we'll have uh, electric planes in the skies carrying passengers in britain that will be incredible Here's a disturbing headline. Over 20,000 people died in Western Europe's summer heat waves, according to new figures. Uh, I mean, this is incredible. Temperatures that would have been virtually impossible are are there. Um, climate breakdown, of course, responsible. And we now see these excess death figures. Yeah. And um, you're probably recalling, I, I did a piece on the radio with Julia Hartley Brewer a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And she was slagging off the Just Stop Oil people and complaining that a copper had fell off his bike. And somebody had missed a funeral, actually, in the, uh, in the, uh, you know, the traffic buildups that they'd caused. And uh, the point I made to her was that people are actually dying from the climate crisis right now across the world. She reacted strongly to that idea, dismissing it completely. And I said, look, there have been 40,000 deaths uh, you know, across the world. Uh, she said, no, they haven't. But you know, there were, there were nearly 4,000 in Britain. This study shows that there were 20,000 across Europe. And it's all about the climate crisis. So you've got to hold that on one side and say, people are dying People are dying in big numbers across the world. And we're locking up just up old protesters because we and complaining about the inconvenience of being sat in a traffic jam because they're trying to bring to our attention the, the absolute madness of what we're doing right now, drilling for more oil and gas in the North Sea when we know that fossil fuels are driving a climate crisis that is killing tens of thousands of people. And a final one from Mark on Facebook says, Dale, have you got time to get that hovercraft out before winter? <laughs> Absolutely. What I'm told we is... Get, we get a lot in the mailbag, I have to say, about the hovercraft. I think we all want to try the hovercraft. It's, oh, my God. It's like days away. It's, it's past all of its tests now. We've been running it for an hour at a time. The battery's doing really well. Uh, you know, we, we thought it would run for 20 minutes, but it, we're, we're hitting the hour mark. We should be actually bringing it out in the world. We're looking for somewhere to test it. I was thinking about Western Supermare because uh, I was down there recently doing a litter clean with Sea Shepherd and I met some, uh, some rescue hovercraft people who were really interested in the idea. So we thought we might take it there. Otherwise, um, may, may try and find a local lake or, or a car park and do donuts in a car park. Why not? <laughs> I'm definitely up for that. We'll record the podcast while we're doing it as well. Might be a bit wobbly, but there we go. Uh, Have a cracking week, Dale. We'll speak in seven days. Brilliant. See you then. That is it for this episode. Don't forget, of course, to follow this podcast from your podcast provider. That means you get each new episode automatically. If you can leave a review there as well, that would be fabulous. Don't forget to follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince, facebook.com slash dalevince, and on Insta and TikTok too. Zero carbon east off.